Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. I'd like to thank you for joining us today for our online class. This is part of the group learning program where we meet each Sunday and Wednesday to discuss aspects of Gautama Buddha's teachings to help you along this path to enlightenment where you can train the mind to be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. Today we're in chapter 17 of this book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment. In this chapter, it's titled Eliminating Fears. Are you really scared? Fears are one of the things that hold us back in the world. Oftentimes we have so many fears that we come up with a certain idea and we look to pursue it and we end up talking ourselves out of it based on our own fears rather than just pursuing the idea and realizing the benefits of having done so. So I titled this chapter, Eliminating Fears, Are You Really Scared? Because what you'll find out in today's class is you're actually not really scared. What fear is, is fear is a discontent feeling or is discontentedness. The mind is discontent because of the fear. But if you've been studying Gotama Buddha's teachings for any length of time, then you understand what causes discontentedness. What causes discontentedness is craving, desire, attachment. That's the cause of all discontentedness. Whether the mind experiences pleasant feelings, painful feelings, or feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant, the mind is getting these feelings because of craving, desire, attachment. What craving, desire, attachment is, is it's a mental longing with a strong eagerness. The mind wants something. The mind expects something. The mind is yearning or longing for something. It has some object of its affection. And whatever it wants, if it gets that, then it's going to experience these pleasant feelings. Happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, euphoria. If it doesn't get what it wants, it's going to experience painful feelings, anger, sadness, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear. And then sometimes the mind doesn't even know what it wants. It's kind of like, you know, not really sure. It experiences these feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant, like boredom or loneliness. Sometimes we might put shyness or kind of an unsatisfactory feeling where the mind is discontent because it's uncomfortable. It's unsatisfied. Well, there's a whole litany of fears that people can have. They might be afraid of spiders or afraid of heights or afraid of the dark, afraid of death. If you've ever been in a car accident, you might be afraid to actually drive in a car for a period of time. 
if you have had certain experiences in life, say that you got robbed by a person with long blonde hair wearing a black coat, you might actually be afraid of people with long blonde hair and a black coat. Or if you had any kind of abuse or traumatic experience in your life, those same situations can produce fear in the mind. And the reason why I say that you're not really scared is because the real problem isn't that you're scared. The real problem is, is that the mind is holding on to conditioning. It's holding on to something that it wants. It wants something. It's craving something. And therefore, it's experiencing this discontentedness or this fear in the mind. So if someone is afraid of heights, for example, since one of our young students mentioned that she's afraid of heights, and this is a common one, that people are oftentimes afraid of heights being too high. Well, the thing that's producing the fear is the craving desire attachment. What's the craving desire attachment? Oftentimes a person is craving life. They're craving existence. And they feel that being up high, there's a potential for them to fall and die. And what's producing the fear is the craving for life, the craving to exist in this world. And that's what's actually producing the fear. So there's ways to antidote this. There's ways to fix this. What you do is you gradually train the mind to get comfortable, to experience peacefulness, to experience calmness and contentedness in the situation that it fears. The mind has been conditioned at some point and it's holding on, thinking that something really high should be fearful and that you should fear for your life. And it thinks that that's unsafe. Somewhere along the line, either in this life or previous lives, the mind has developed this conditioning and it's holding on to this craving desire attachment. It's holding on to exist in this world. And you've got to put the mind in that situation and desensitize it. You have to uncondition the mind to see that there's nothing to fear by being up high. So one of the things that you might do is go to a building or to a mall that has multiple floors. Go up there and look over the side and just sit there and look over the side for 5, 10, 15 minutes and train the mind that there's nothing to be afraid of being up high. And as you're there and you're looking over the side, you're desensitizing the mind as you feel any kind of fear arise as you feel any discontentedness arise, you cut it off and let it go. And you train the mind that there's nothing to fear here. And you do that over multiple sessions. And you might start kind of a little bit slow. You might start on like a second or third story. And you do that a few times, desensitize the mind over multiple sessions. Then you might go up to a fourth, fifth, or sixth floor, kind of increase the stimulus and desensitize the mind that there's nothing to fear being up high. And then eventually maybe you go to like a 20, 30, 50 foot building. And not only are you inside looking over a rail, but maybe you can find like a rooftop restaurant or something like this on a high rise where it's just glass and you look over and you're no longer afraid to be in high places. Maybe you even use a ladder or things like this to desensitize the mind and actively train it that there's nothing to fear by being up high. 
And there's constant fears that the mind can have. It can be afraid of the dark. It can be afraid of spiders. And you just take this same approach. If someone's afraid of spiders or ants or something like this, then you gradually train the mind to let that go. So if someone's afraid of a certain type of insect, they might choose to look at these pictures on the internet or in a magazine or something like this. And over multiple sessions, look at these insects that they're afraid of, or some people are even afraid of snakes. Just look at that over and over and over again and kind of train the mind and desensitize it. And when you notice that you can easily look at pictures on the internet, or you can easily look at a magazine with pictures of these insects or a snake or something like that, then you kind of up the stimulus. Maybe now you go to a museum, a museum that has these insects or snakes that are preserved and they're dead, but they look a little bit more real than a picture in a magazine or on the internet. And now you go do that a few times and you desensitize the mind to that. Then maybe you move into kind of a natural environment. If it's spiders or ants, those are pretty easy to find. You can go out into a natural environment and kind of look for them and then just sit there and observe that there's nothing to fear because the mind is holding on to some negative experiences. It might have seen a, a horror movie where spiders or ants were attacking people, or you might have had someone in your family that's afraid of spiders or ants, or maybe when you were a little kid, you were playing on the floor and an ant or a spider came by and some adult came by and said, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, a spider, an ant. And that's conditioned the mind that spiders or ants or some other thing is to be feared. And that imprinted in the mind and it's now conditioned the mind to think that spiders or ants, for example, are to be feared. And if this is what your mind's holding on to and you know that, then what you have to do is you have to replace those negative experiences that you had with positive experiences where you see that you can look at pictures of these insects or animals, you can go to museums and look at them, you can even look at them in their natural environment and there's nothing to fear. There's no harm that comes to you. And over multiple sessions of doing this, the mind ultimately releases the conditioning. Or another way to say this is the mind eliminates the craving desire attachment to never see a snake or to never see a spider or never see an ant. The mind has to let go of this conditioning. And the only way that I know to do that is to maintain your breathing mindfulness meditation practice and your practice of generosity, which is actively working to overall train the mind to let go of craving desire attachment. But then with specific things like fears, you need to put the mind in those specific situations and actively train it over multiple sessions to let go. One example I can give you is I noticed a couple years ago that Bailan, my son, was afraid of the dark. So I needed to train him to let go of that fear. And when I noticed that, what I would do is we would be downstairs on our way upstairs at nighttime to sleep. And he obviously showed that he was scared of the dark. So what I would do is I would hold his hand walking up the stairs and I would allow him to turn off the light because he was making the choice to turn off the light. So he would turn off the light and we would walk upstairs. And we did this multiple nights where he felt comfortable walking with dad with the light off. Okay. 
Then after doing that, we progressed where I would walk halfway up the stairs and he would be at the bottom. And then he would turn off the lights and walk up to me. And then together we would walk the next part holding hands. And we did that multiple times. Then I would stand at the top of the stairs. He would turn off the light and walk up the stairs by himself to me. Then we did that multiple times. Then over time, I would just stay in my room and I would say, Bailan, can you go downstairs and get something for me? And then he would have to go do it by himself. And it was choices that he made. And he didn't necessarily always enjoy and he kind of struggled sometimes. And we kind of had to find a way to make his mind comfortable. But eventually, as he was doing this and he realized through experiencing that there's nothing to be afraid of in the dark, then he realized that he didn't need to be afraid of the dark. And we ultimately upped the ante a bit where he went into a bathroom and he closed the door and he turned off the light and he sat in there for a few minutes by himself. And he could see that there was nothing to fear that each time he was in the dark, either with me or by himself, that he always came out and he was always alive. He has always survived. There was nothing that attacked him. There was nothing that was to be feared. And it helped to desensitize his mind to being in the dark. So you can do these things for your children if you have children that are having certain fears. But you can also do this with yourself. If you're afraid of heights or you're afraid of spiders or ants or snakes or if you're afraid of death, one of the things that you do in order to desensitize the mind to death is you sit and you contemplate your own death. What you do is you wait until there's a time where you have a couple of hours to work through the emotions and you sit and you quietly think about your own death. You think about dying, you think about perhaps a funeral, you think about how sad your family would be observing that you died. Think about all the things that maybe you haven't said to people that you need to say or certain things that you would like to hear from people before you die. This actually helps with other craving desire attachments too. But by you contemplating your death and just coming to terms that this is something that you're going to face at some point, you can't avoid it. So what you do is you confront it. You desensitize the mind to it by contemplating your own death. And then after you do that for 30 minutes or so, then after you're done, you get to get up and go see your kids or you get to get up and see your partner. You get to go have some food at a restaurant or go see some friends or call your mom or your dad. And you do this over multiple sessions until it no longer bothers you. The first one, two, three sessions that you do this, you might be a little bit discontent as a result. You might become sad. You might become frustrated or irritated. You might have some fear. But through you doing this over multiple sessions, maybe once every two or three weeks or once a month, as you do this each time, it'll get easier and easier for you to contemplate your own death, where eventually you get to the point where you just recognize that, yeah, this body is going to die. This mind is going to separate from the body. And that's just impermanence. And that's what's going to happen. And you've come to terms with that. And through that contemplation of death, you might actually come up with certain craving, desire, attachments, things that you haven't said to people that you would like to say before you die someday, 
or you might come up with certain things that you haven't heard from somebody in order to die peacefully. So like when I was growing up, I had a concern that my mom never loved me because I never heard her say that I love you. I never heard this growing up as a child. I didn't really get that kind of care from my mother. So through this contemplation of death and realizing that I never heard my mom really say, I love you, through this contemplation and realizing there is that craving, I ultimately went to her and asked her, mom, do you love me? And she said, of course I love you, you're my son. Why do you ask? I said, because I've never heard you say it before. And she's like, oh, okay. And then from that point forward, she started telling me she loved me more. And these are the kind of things that you can come up with to kind of desensitize the mind from the fear, but then also see what the underlying craving is. In the situation with fear of death, of course, there's a craving, desire, attachment to exist in this world. That's why the mind is fearing death. Oftentimes, that's the same fear with heights or with a snake or with insects that have poison. The mind can actually be fearing death. So if there's a self there, if the mind hasn't realized non-self yet, oftentimes the mind's holding on, wanting to stay in this world permanently or permanently having some type of existence, and the mind can fear death. But there's other fears too. If you have ever been in a car accident before, and in that car accident, it was very traumatic. And then for many months and maybe years after that, you might have been holding on to the conditioning of that experience in the car accident. And now whenever you get in a car, those memories come back of the pain that you experienced during the car accident. And the mind is holding on to that conditioning. It's craving permanent health. It's not actually scared of the car because you've been in the car many, many times and you've traveled in the car many times. What the mind's actually doing is it's holding on to this conditioning. It has this craving, desire, attachment for permanent health. And this conditioning that is in the mind, you have to uncondition the mind and desensitize it. So the way that you might do that is if you're fearing being in a car after a car accident or for any reason, then maybe you have someone that you trust drive a car and you sit in the passenger side and you slowly drive around the neighborhood in safe streets that you feel comfortable on. And then they bring you back driving nice and easy. And then you realize, oh, okay, I got back safe. And that felt just fine for me. While there was maybe some apprehension, some anxiety along the way, you ultimately let that go as part of the car ride and maybe a few hours after the car ride. And then maybe wait three days or a week and go do it again and see the condition of the mind gradually improve as the discontentedness slowly diminishes. And then as you see that, then you up the ante a little bit. Now maybe your friend or family member that you trust doesn't just drive you on the safe community roads, neighborhood roads, but maybe they take you out on a bigger road, like a highway or something like this. And now the speed is a little bit faster. There's more cars going by and you're kind of increasing the stimulus that the mind has to then desensitize itself to. And then you do that a few times. Observe the mind with mindfulness. See if there's any anxiety. See if there's any kind of fear that arises. And then when that subsides over multiple sessions, then maybe you up the ante a little bit more. You decide to drive in the neighborhood roads. 
And you do that a few times and you come back and you see each time you've been safe. And then you up the ante a bit and you go out on larger roads and you take longer and longer drives. So I think here with these few examples, you're seeing that the fear in the mind is not actually something that you're scared of. It's actually something that the mind is holding on to, craving, desire, attachment. And there's a way to eliminate this discontentedness through unconditioning the mind or desensitizing the mind, training the mind to let go of this conditioning. And what I'd like to do is open up to any questions that you guys have related to what I've been sharing and give you a chance to share any fears that you're having or that you know you have. And as you describe your fear, I can potentially give you some ideas of ways to desensitize the mind. Because as long as there's fear in the mind, that's a discontent feeling. As long as there's discontentedness, the mind still has craving, desire, attachment. And therefore, the mind is not going to experience enlightenment because all that needs to happen is for the mind to come in contact with certain insects or animals or the heights or a car ride or the dark or some other thing. And the mind is shaken up. It's uncalm. So what we would like to do is for each individual practitioner, for any fears that you're having, you would like to take an inventory of that know what those fears are, and then put together an active training plan in order to desensitize the mind from these fears so that you can then reside peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, whether you're on the ground with two feet or you're up at a 30-story building. Whether you're in the light or you're in the dark, the mind is just as peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. Whether you are experiencing life or you're thinking about death, your own death, your mind can be just as peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy or any other fear. There's fears of being poor. There's fears of being homeless. There's fear of losing your job. There's fear of maybe losing your parents. There's all kinds of fears that the mind can hold on to. And what you've got to do is put together an active training plan. So in addition to any questions that you might ask about what I've shared, Feel free to share any fears that you're having and I will help you see how to release them and eliminate them so that you can move the mind closer to enlightenment. The way you ask questions is put those into the Facebook comments, YouTube or Zoom. Just type out your question in the comment section. Our moderators, James, Manoa and Bossom will see that and be able to ask your question during the class and I will make sure that I answer it for you. Or if you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly in order to get your questions asked and answered that way. So I'll just turn things over to all of you guys for the remaining part of today's class. Hi, David. So it sounds like with fears, like with other discontent emotions, they're great indicators for our attachments, you'd say? Yes, this is that red light on the dashboard that I talked about a few weeks ago that wherever you see fear arising in the mind, you should notice that as a red light and immediately start looking at what are the craving desire attachments that are producing that. Sometimes you can actually have something what we call a panic attack, right? People call those things panic attacks. What that really is, is that's the mind having fear. And you can actually completely eliminate those from the mind through this type of training. So if you have a panic attack and you feel that coming on, 
then after it subsided, maybe a few hours or a few days later, you need to investigate that and see what is it that is the mind craving, desiring, attached that's producing that fear. Just like when you see the red light on the dashboard of a car, you're going to pull over the car and you're going to investigate. You're going to check the oil. You're going to check the coolant. You're going to check the gas. You're going to check spark plugs. You're going to check all these different things in the car to see what is the problem. The same thing when you see fear arise in the mind, it's that red light and you've got to investigate that so that you can eradicate it. Because the other option is to just hold on to the craving, desire, attachment and just keep being fearful your whole life. What the unenlightened mind wants to do is it wants to push away the spiders. It wants to push away the snakes. It wants to make sure you're never in the heights or you're never in the dark because the mind has aversion and it's pushing away this painful experience thinking that that's going to solve the problem. But the problem is, is that's not permanent. Being in lights is not permanent. You're going to be in the dark sometime. Never seeing an ant is not permanent or never seeing spiders or never seeing snakes or never being in a high position. That's not permanent. You're going to need to be in those situations. So if the mind has aversion and just tries to push these things out of your life, and try to create this perfect little bubble, well, that bubble is going to get burst. And when it does, your mind's going to be shaken up. So rather than push away these painful feelings of fear and try to push away these situations, instead, what I'm suggesting to you and encouraging you to do is instead confront it and put the mind into that situation, desensitize it over multiple situations, multiple circumstances, multiple sessions, And then after you desensitize the mind and you let go of that craving, desire, attachment, then if you're in the dark or you're not in the dark, no problem. If you're up high or you're down low, no problem. If you see a snake or a spider or an ant, no problem, no big deal. But if you keep pushing away and keep allowing the mind to have aversion, thinking that it can permanently do that, then you're just sweeping the problem under the carpet and it's not actually being solved. But by confronting this, you can actively train the mind to eliminate the fear. I thought I would ask David about root fears. It seems that many of our fears, such as heights or driving or the dark, there's a deeper root fear there, such as the fear of death. And do you feel that we should address the root fear first or Is it important to address those surface fears first or how do you feel about that? You're addressing the root cause, which is the craving, desire, attachment. So in your situation or or in your example, what you're describing is somebody who's craving permanence in terms of their existence. They're not comfortable with death. So that's the real problem is the craving, desire, attachment to exist. Or maybe they're afraid of painful death. So that's where you have to confront that, contemplate that, desensitize the mind about that over multiple sessions. That's the real core problem. You're not actually addressing the fear. The fear is actually the symptom. The fear is not actually the cause of the problem. The cause is the craving, desire, attachment. The fear is just the symptom. So when you see the symptom, then you dig into it and you go back to the root cause which is going to be some cravings, desires, attachments. And when you find out and discover what those are, then you can actively eliminate them. And that's what's going to eliminate the fear or the discontentedness. 
Thank you, David. And I thought I would ask about fears that we can potentially avoid. If there is a fear that we may not likely face, is it still important for our practice and for our mind to address that fear and to eliminate it? What fear could you actually avoid? Can you give me an example? Well, I suppose if we had a fear of flying, but we lived a lifestyle that didn't, we would never fly potentially, just as an example, or, you know, like perhaps a fear of the ocean, but we live very far from the ocean, something like that. Okay, so if there's that kind of fear that's in there and you just avoid flying and you never fly, then that means that the mind is probably afraid of death, right? It's craving, desiring, attached to existence in this world. So if you just avoid flying, then that craving, desire, attachment still in the mind and you're not going to experience enlightenment because it's not just the fear of flying, but that fear of flying is the symptom, but the underlying craving, desire, attachment is that the mind is holding on craving permanence to exist in this world. So it's going to be afraid of flying because of that craving desire attachment to exist it's going to be afraid of height maybe when somebody walks by that maybe looks a little bit scary for that person they're going to be scared of that too because they're afraid that they're going to die this craving desire attachment to exist in the world is the underlying core problem and it's going to produce multiple symptoms this is why when you deeply understand the Buddhist teachings, you'll see all these different symptoms, but they actually come back to the same core problem, which is craving desire attachment. Like when we talked about true love a couple of weeks ago, when we talked about how the unenlightened mind is not practicing true love, what did I start out with? Talking about craving desire attachment. You know, a lot of these classes that we're having now I kind of preface everything that I talk about is craving desire attachment because that's the core problem that we talked about back in chapter four, but it produces so many problems in one's life that if you were to just avoid flying all the time, then you're going to experience discontentedness in other parts of your life. The mind's never going to experience permanent peace, calm, serenity, and contentedness with joy, and you're just kind of sweeping under the carpet this craving desire attachment and there's going to be rebirth so not only is there going to be discontentedness continuously throughout this life but there's going to be a rebirth as well and one of the things that i suggest to people is that the mind is kind of like holding water like a sponge or a rag and this water is like the craving desire attachment you can also think about it as craving anger and ignorance like these poisons are being held in the sponge or the rag and rather than just kind of avoiding and putting the rag in a certain place where it can hold on to that water instead wring the water out wring it out wring it out wring it out get all that water out of the sponge get all that water out of the rag because that's what's ultimately going to produce beneficial results so if we just avoid these situations that the mind is fearful of, you're not actually solving the real problem. You're just covering it up and the rag is still holding on to this polluted water. You've got to wring it out wherever you see discontentedness. 
But in some sense, it seems like we should be almost thankful for our fears because they do point out these attachments and we can attack that and we can resolve that and without the fear, perhaps we wouldn't have been able to find that. Yeah, every time the mind is discontent, you know, the natural tendency, if you have a craving for enlightenment, if you have a craving desire attachment for a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind, if the mind becomes discontent, you might actually be discontent because the mind's discontent, right? Because you're craving peacefulness. Well, if you let that go, and each individual time the mind's discontent, you're like, oh, thank goodness. Thank goodness I discovered this, right? It's kind of like every time the red light comes on on your dashboard of your car, you're not thinking like, oh, that crazy light, I wish it would just go out. You're like, oh, thank goodness. Now I can pull over and I can check what's going on with the car and I can investigate this. So each time you experience any discontentedness whatsoever, rather than being discontent that the mind is discontent, i.e. craving permanence of peacefulness, calmness, serenity, with joy that you're not there yet. Instead, look at that discontentedness, no matter what it is, whether it's fear or anything else, as thank goodness, because now I can investigate this and I can figure out what is holding me back from enlightenment. What is the craving, desire, attachments that are deep inside the mind that I can investigate and I can actively eliminate? And if you're having trouble seeing that, reach out to your teacher and you can say, hey, look, I've been discontent for the last three days. Here's the situation. I don't even know what attachments are causing this. Or I think it might be this or I think it might be that. What else do you have to say, teacher? What else could potentially be the craving desire attachments that are in the mind here and then as you get better and better at looking internally and looking at the mind you won't need as much help anymore because you'll become an expert at identifying your own craving desire attachments and you'll become an expert at putting together a plan of how to eliminate them and this is where it almost gets fun when i would get discontent i would used to say oh, wow, look at that. And I would kind of laugh at myself sometimes. And I'd be like, oh, wow, got some more work to do. Let me work on that. And that's actually kind of fun. There was a period of time where I didn't experience discontentedness for a long period of time. And I actually became discontent that I wasn't discontent because I was actually attached to doing the work. I was enjoying all this wisdom and this active work, this active project. And I was like, man, I haven't had any situations where I haven't been discontent for like three months or six months. Like, man, I want to work on something. That was actually really fun, putting together those plans and figuring out how to eliminate it and then feeling the release when the discontentedness and the craving actually eliminated from the mind. You can actually feel it release sometimes. So I actually became discontent that there was no longer any discontentedness. <laughs> so you've got to look at those situations and be like, what is it that I'm craving? Oh, I'm craving to fix the mind. And I got attached to doing all this work and it was just so fun. So now you have to get rid of that attachment too. So it can actually be quite enjoyable if you cast it in a positive way, like you're talking about James and looking at it as a real positive thing that thank goodness the mind became discontent in this situation because now I, I know about that and now I can investigate that and now I can work to eliminate it so that it'll never become discontent ever again in that situation. 
Thank you, David. We've had several questions and examples come in from Zoom, so I'm going to try over to Bassam now. Sure. Hi, teacher David. Bassam is experiencing some, uh, experiencing some impermanence with his internet, so I'll go ahead and uh, begin reading. We have quite a few questions. Um, Miranda actually had a question in your discussion um, several minutes ago. She popped in a question that, is your advice the same concerning flashbacks like those associated with PTSD? Yes, it's the same thing. So PTSD is uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, right? That's the way people would like us to think or believe that the mind is mentally ill and it's in this condition permanently. And now there's medication that needs to be taken in order to remedy the situation. But what you'll come to realize is what PTSD really is, that people are labeling as PTSD, is really just the mind holding on to traumatic experiences from the past. They're deeply rooted in the mind. The mind is holding on to it. It doesn't have a practice of training the mind to let go through meditation and generosity. So therefore, it keeps reliving those experiences. And it keeps experiencing that trauma and the stress related to some past experiences rather than having the mind trained to be in the present moment and having released that conditioning and no longer experiencing the stress related to those traumatic events. So if there's someone who has certain traumatic events in their life, depending on what the event was, they may be able to use the approach that I'm sharing here to confront the situation. But in some situations, it's not wise to do that. And I'm thinking about like people who have been in war, like soldiers, oftentimes they come back with PTSD and they've gone through traumatic experiences through war. Well, the solution here wouldn't be to go back to war and have a positive experience in war because there is no such thing as a positive experience in war. Instead, there's the breathing mindfulness meditation, there's the generosity, there's bringing the mind into the present moment and working more skillfully on what the actual situation was to bring the mind into the present moment and let go of any conditioning from the past. So that's how I would work with somebody, but it would need to be on a one-on-one -on -one basis because each person can have PTSD based on different situations in some of these situations and most of them i'm not going to suggest for somebody to go back into the traumatic experience but instead work with breathing mindfulness meditation and other things in order to desensitize the mind to the experience that led to the mind holding on to it okay um, chrissy has a question if one has a fear of upsetting others would the attachment be the desire to be liked that's one of them, yep, a desire to be liked, craving permanence and for everyone to like you. So you think that the mind is going to permanently have everyone like you, which that's not going to be the case. Of course, you know, we practice in a way that is polite, kind, friendly, and respectful to all beings, but based on other people's pollution in the mind and based on impermanence, it's impossible for everyone in this world to like you. It's just utterly impossible. And you have to come to grips with that, that the mind is craving to be liked. It's craving this admiration. It's craving to have people speak nice to you all the time. And this is where 
I often share that the Buddhist teachings aren't necessarily about what's right or wrong because, yeah, it would be wonderful if everybody liked us. It would be absolutely wonderful. But the way that the world works, the way that the impermanence is a universal truth, there's just never going to be a time where every single person in the world likes you. And as long as the mind is craving for other people to like you, then your mind is going to be fearful and be hesitant and shy and not be willing to actually speak in your natural way because you're fearful of potentially upsetting somebody else. And you have to also understand deeply that you can't upset somebody else. You know, if somebody else experiences being upset or they don't like you, that's because of their own pollution in their mind, their own defilements. It's not necessarily something that you've done. Now, we can do things in the unenlightened state that create situations or conditions where people don't like us. But as you clean up your practice more and more, you'll be doing less and less of those things. But even an enlightened being, there's going to be people that don't like an enlightened being. It's just going to be the case. During the lifetime of the Buddha, there were people who just didn't like the Buddha and chose not to study with him and thought that his teachings were harmful. So even in an enlightened being and an actual Buddha, there's going to be people who don't like them. So if not everyone can like the Buddha, they're surely not going to like you. So training the mind to just accept that you're going to practice in a way that causes no harm to others the best you can. But even in doing that, there's going to be people who occasionally don't like you. And that's their decision. That's harming them. But if you remain with loving kindness and compassion and let go of that craving, desire, attachment to always wanting to be liked, then you can feel more safe and more comfortable to share openly and not have that fear anymore. Hey, Donnie has a question now. I have a fear of forgetting, overlooking things and not being able to do 100% of the things that need to be done. Whether it's remembering to lock the door, work-related things, or I need to buy for something from memory. Guilt is part of the emotions felt when I realize that I forgot to overlook certain things also. Okay, so that guilt is part of the discontentedness based on the craving, desire, attachment that you permanently want to be productive or you permanently want to lock the door, or you permanently want to get all of these certain tasks done, that craving, desire, attachment to getting all these things done in a certain way is producing fear and it's producing guilt. Instead, what you got to do to bring this to the middle is you've got to realize like, okay, well, it's kind of wise for me to lock the door each night before I go to bed. It's kind of wise for me to do this, that, or the other thing. But there's going to be situations where you're not going to do those things or you're not going to remember those things. Or you might wake up in the morning and have a certain list of things that you're planning to get done. But then based on impermanence, you might only get two or three of those items done on your list. And you've got to be comfortable with that. And you've got to train the mind to just be comfortable with it. Because if you wake up with a 10 bulleted list and you want to get everything done and you only are going to feel accomplished and you're only going to feel productive if you get those 10 things done, then you're going to plow through your day just to get those 10 things done. And you're going to make unwholesome decisions along the way. 
And even if you get your list done, you're going to have to clean up the unwholesome things that you potentially overlooked as a result of this craving desire attachment. So instead, you've got to bring the mind into the present moment. And in the middle is, well, I would like to get these 10 things done, but I'm not quite sure that I'll be able to. I'm just going to work through my list. And if I get two or three done, then that's fine. I know that I accomplished whatever I could accomplish today based on the time, effort, energy, and resources that I have available to me. I'm just going to work on those few things. And whatever I get done, I get done. And there's always tomorrow, the next day, and the next day. So don't allow the mind to push you and push you and push you and force you to get everything done based on some pre-prescribed list because that's just the mind craving permanence and that craving, desire, attachment, wants, expectations. It's going to produce fear. It's going to produce guilt. You're going to experience discontentedness. So you need to train the mind to let that go and just focus on one thing at a time. Intuitive has a question next. Dear teacher David, I have met these big group of people. Some of them are really sweet and some of them make many comments on how much they dislike black people, refugees, Muslims, Jews, and on and on. I know most of them are good people, uh, good people enough, but I fear this behavior can attract dangerous people. I can be alone, but from fear of being too alone, I'm considering seeing some of them again. What type of aversion would be common sense? Okay, so the solution here isn't to go around other people. If you're fearing being alone, then you've got to desensitize the mind to that. You have to train the mind to be alone and be comfortable with that. If you decide to go around other people because of the fear of being alone, well, you're craving, desiring, attached, wanting to be around others. And you're not actually solving the problem because now you can't be around other people permanently and you're going to still experience loneliness. So a better approach would be to train your mind to do multiple things alone. And once you observe that the mind can be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy alone for extended periods of time, then you can start introducing relationships where you can start being with other people. So I had this same fear at one time in my life, too. So I would go out to the mall alone. I would go watch movies alone. I would go on drives alone. I would go different places alone. And as I did this more and more and more, the mind got comfortable with being alone, feeling safe, feeling secure, feeling peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy in your own skin. And then once you do, being with other people is a breeze. And then when you're not with other people, you won't be fearful anymore because you've trained the mind to be alone. So you can't train the mind to eliminate the fear of being alone by being with other people. You actually have to train the mind to be alone through meditation, through going places alone, taking walks alone, going shopping alone, even going on vacation alone, if that's something that you have the ability to do as COVID restrictions release, take little holidays, you know, for a day or two or three here and there. Take day trips. One of the things I share with people is, you know, falling in love with yourself, even though there is no self. And even though we're not talking about conceited love, one of the things that oftentimes the unenlightened mind 
doesn't like is it doesn't like being alone because you're dealing with all those thoughts in your own mind. Or we sometimes disparage ourselves when we're alone. And having somebody around, the mind isn't thinking about that kind of stuff. So you've actually got to train the mind to fall in love with itself without conceit and without arrogance. And the way you do this is take yourself out on a date, take yourself out to eat, take yourself out to a restaurant, take yourself out to a movie, take yourself out shopping, take yourself on a holiday or a vacation, fall in love with yourself. And then when you're comfortable, peaceful, calm, serene, content with joy alone, then being around other people is kind of a breeze. Yeah, that's very, very nice to hear that, Teacher David, to fall in love with yourself. As parents, we often say uh, things like this to our children. Hey, um, you have to, you know, you're, you have to love yourself for who you are and um, whatever attributes you may be able to have. And uh, when, when young minds are trying to discover who they are with their peers, we often encourage them to just be themselves and love themselves. But as adults, uh, we don't hear that often, you know, like you have to love yourself, treat yourself, do mm -hmm. something for yourself. So that is, um, that is actually a very important reminder. Early on in my meditation practice, one of the most difficult things was sitting there in meditation with my own thoughts. Because, you know, when your mind is heavily defiled, one of the most scariest things is listening to your own thoughts. And that went on for a really long period of time. And that can be really scary. And being alone, oftentimes, even though you're not meditating, being alone can be awfully scary because you're dealing with your own thoughts and all that conditioning in the mind. And that's where you've got to take active steps, apply right effort. When you see those unwholesome thoughts or those scary thoughts or any kind of thing that's arising in the mind, taking active role to eliminate that so going out on walks and going shopping going to the movies doing these different things you can fall in love with yourself but not with conceit just being comfortable in your own skin and that will increase your confidence and you'll be able to then reside confident when you're alone or when you're with other people and you might actually start to appreciate your time alone and really value it because during those alone times you can do a lot of reflection you can do a lot of inner work you can really look inward when i talk to some students that are really busy and like parents are oftentimes very busy parents with young children that they don't actually take time alone for themselves and this is something that parents and even single people or even people with a life partner who's involved in work and with a life partner having time alone is so very healthy for the mind when i grew up i remember in america that we were kind of laughed at and mocked if we you know went somewhere like in college if we went to the dining hall alone we were laughed at and mocked because it was like you don't have any friends or if you went to the mall by yourself and walked around by yourself, we were kind of laughed at and mocked. And this is one of the reasons why my mind was conditioned and I was afraid of being alone at one time. But what I did is I slowly trained the mind to, to be alone. And one of the things that I noticed here in Thailand, when I go to the mall, for example, about 50% of the people are actually alone, I would say, because you need that inner reflection. You need time alone go out on a drive, go out on a hike, go out and do things 
alone and by yourself and you get used to spending time alone you get comfortable in your own skin you get comfortable to have that time of reflection and if you have a really busy life you might have to create this space not only do you maybe need to create space in your life for meditation but you maybe need to create space in your life here and there to spend some alone time and if you have young children that might be a bit challenging but even when i am usually taking care of bailan alone and his mom is like in america for three months i will usually make sure that he goes to bed at say eight o'clock and then i will spend you know eight thirty nine ten alone and just kind of reflecting on the day what went well what things can i improve what are some things that I will maybe need to address tomorrow? And once you have that time for that inner reflection, then your mind can be at ease because it wasn't just go, 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 go all day, but you actually kind of put a brakes on things for a while and you spend some time looking inward and really reflecting on your day and areas that you can improve and also some areas that went well and think about those things as well so that you can continue to do those things. We have a question from Holly. My son tried to learn how to ride a bike when he was six or seven years old. He took a bad fall. I tried for six to eight months to get him to try again, but he refused. He eventually outgrew his bike and never wanted another one. He is now 14 years old and has no interest in learning how to ride a bike. Should I continue to try and get him to work on this or just let him decide? Will this fear turn into something bigger when he becomes an adult? Everything you always do, you should always let everybody decide. But as a mom and knowing that he has this fear, you can lightly encourage him. You can lightly influence him. One of the things that you might choose to do to help him feel more comfortable in getting over this fear is having him ride a bike with you, like a double bike or uh, maybe a three-wheel bike. Uh, because that will feel more safe for him. If he's afraid to ride a single bike by himself, which is two wheels, you look at something that's going to be safer for him and it's going to make him feel more comfortable. So if you go on holiday somewhere and they have three-wheel bikes or there's a double bike that you guys can ride together or something like this, then this can kind of slowly help him feel comfortable to ride a bike again. Because as long as he holds on to that fear, then he's going to continue to experience the fear. Uh, there's a craving desire attachment there that he doesn't want to feel that hurt again. He doesn't want to feel the pain that he felt when he fell over and he hurt his knee or he hurt his elbow or whatever it was. And he's trying to have aversion to push away the bicycle because in his mind, he thinks that the bicycle is the problem. But in reality, it's not the bicycle because he can fall down rollerblading, skateboarding. He can just walk out of the house and fall down the, the stairs. So if you can and you can suggest and influence in certain ways, then it would be wonderful for you to kind of bring the threshold down. Right. Once you're training the mind, you want to bring the threshold up to desensitize it. But oftentimes to get a child to step into something, you have to bring the threshold really, really down so they feel really, really comfortable. And that was like my example with Bailan of him turning off the light, choosing to turn off the light and us holding hands, walking up the stairs together. So with your son and bicycles, 
you have to find a safe way. And just off the top of my head, I'm thinking a three-wheel bike or a double bike where you and him can ride it together. Or there's even some vacation places in America that have like four-wheel little buggies that have pedals and it's super safe. You know, he doesn't have to know that's what you're doing, but maybe you introduce that to him and say, hey, let's go on this together. And then you ride down the boardwalk on a four-wheel buggy and you're pedaling. So it kind of undoes some of that conditioning of being on that pedal device and falling over and hurting himself. And after he does that a few times, then maybe he goes to a three-wheel bike. And then maybe he goes to a bicycle with you and him together. And then ultimately over time, his mind will start to undo this conditioning and he may decide to ride a two-wheel bike by himself again. Okay, she has another question. Uh, Now that I am learning these teachings, I can see my husband's words are unwholesome. I catch myself being fearful that something bad will happen to our family because of his unwholesome intentions. This is an attachment to the safety of my family, right? Sounds like it. Yes, it sounds like you're holding on to your sons, which is a very common one for parents to hold on to their children, particularly a mother. From my experience here observing Bailan and his mom, it was very uh, much easier for me to let go of Bailan than it has been for his mom. Because after all, these children were part of your body for nine months. And uh, if you breastfed or you did other kind of uh, spending time with them at home, there was a lot of time for the mind to have attachment. So a mother's attachment to their children is oftentimes much more challenging to let go of than for a man. So yeah, it sounds like you're trying to shelter and protect your sons from your husband's speech. And what you need to come to realize is that whatever your husband says to your sons, if that's unwholesome and it's harmful, that's his relationship with them and it's affecting your husband. And your sons over time have either already figured out or will figure out that the way that their father is and their relationship will be whatever it is based on your husband's interactions and your son's interactions. And you're not part of that necessarily. They have their own relationship. All you can do is make sure your speech and your actions are wholesome. And that way you have a wholesome relationship with your sons. And then if your husband chooses to observe this more wholesome relationship that you have and chooses to change his behavior, then that's what he chooses. But he may not. And you just have to accept that that's part of their relationship together and you can't necessarily change that. You can influence it through your own actions and your own speech, but you can't change your husband. But anything he says is affecting him, not you. Anastasia has a question. How or what do you call the I who identifies the fear and has to do the work of getting rid of the fear? This is the mind. It's not, it's not the I. Although in an unenlightened mind, there is a permanent self that the mind thinks is there. It's a delusion. It's not true reality. But in an unenlightened mind that hasn't realized personal existence view, there's going to be the belief that there is a permanent self there. So that's part of what causes 
things like a fear of death, for example, and some of these other fears, is that because there's a personal existence view there, i.e. the mind hasn't eradicated it yet, that's why the mind is holding on to this permanent self and it fears death. But in reality, there really is no self. But the mind, the unenlightened mind, is holding on to a self. So once the mind learns and practices these teachings more deeply and eradicates the personal existence view, then a lot of these fears will start to slowly dissipate. But some of them you still have to actively eliminate in the way that I'm describing here in today's class. Those are all the questions on Zoom. I had a question as well. wanted to find out how does impulsivity relate to fear? So impulse-driven um, behavior is sometimes void of fear. Uh, but I wanted to find out from your perspective, is there anything to do? I suspect that there might be a lot to do with fear there. The impulse that you're talking about, I refer to it as a reaction. Rather than responding to a situation, the mind is reacting to it. So with craving, desire, attachment in the mind, the mind wanting something permanently, if it gets it, it's going to experience those pleasant feelings. But if it doesn't get it, then it's going to react out of those painful feelings and oftentimes that's with anger, hostility, and other feelings. So that's the impulse that you're talking about that I call being reactive. Rather than respond to the situation, when there's craving, desire, attachment in the mind, the mind wants something. It's expecting something. It's craving something. It will oftentimes then react negatively in any given situation because it's holding on to something and wanting permanence. So for example, there was a student one time that was sharing with me that they were at a doctor and the doctor put like a cotton swab in their nose, for example. And as soon as they felt that cotton swab in their nose, right away their hand, boom, like knocked the doctor's hand and kind of pushed it away. That's the aversion. That's the mind thinking that it's this cotton swab that is causing the painful feelings in the mind and it's trying to get rid of it with aversion. In reality, what it is, is it's the craving, desire, attachment that the mind is holding on and expecting this permanent comfort. It's expecting this permanent pleasantness. And when it experienced that little bit of pain, for example, it wasn't comfortable with that. It didn't recognize that it was impermanent. And right away, boom, it reacted with an impulse, as you're saying, and hit the person's hand, the doctor or the nurse, in order to uh, stop the cotton swab from going in the nose. So this is how the mind will react. It's very much like an animal. If a lion is laying under a tree and it's sleeping and a hyena kind of sneaks up on it and then, you know, the lion hears the hyena the lion's going to jump and row, right? Because the lion is in its own little world. It's laying down. It's craving this permanence of sleep and comfort. And now all of a sudden it hears this sound of a hyena, kind of a sworn enemy of the lion. And now it's going to jump up. It's going to bolt into action and it's going to react in an unwholesome way. It's going to attack the hyena. 
And this is one of the reasons why we need to get rid of craving, desire, attachment and address these fears because the mind going around being fearful all the time is not going to produce this peaceful, calm, serene, content mind with joy. When we were animals, if we were a deer, for example, if we were a prey animal at any time, we went around with a lot of fear. And we were always fearful. Who's coming next? Who's coming next? Who's coming next? And if you can imagine being worried on the plains of Africa that a prey animal is about to attack you, the mind's constantly worried. Well, this is what happens in the human state is when there's craving, desire, attachment there that's producing fear is we walk around being fearful. We walk on eggshells. So using like Chrissy's example, having a craving, desire, attachment to everyone liking you, that probably results in Chrissy walking around almost like on eggshells when she's talking with certain people, particularly new people that she doesn't know. She probably walks around very timidly and is almost very timid to actually talk with people because you're kind of looking out and afraid that this fear is going to be sparked, that there's going to be this reaction of the fear. So avoiding the situation isn't going to actually eliminate the reaction or the impulse, Manal. What's going to eliminate that and bring the mind into peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy is to eliminate the craving, desire, attachment, where the mind no longer has this longing or yearning or strong eagerness for permanence. And when you eliminate that and you recognize that there's going to be these impermanent situations where the body's uncomfortable, or there's going to be these situations where people don't like you, and that's just part of living in this world. When you train the mind to accept that and understand that and acknowledge that and know that, then you won't react negatively with unwholesome conduct. Instead, you can just reside peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, not reacting to situations, but instead responding to them with wisdom, moral conduct, and mental discipline. Yes, I do understand your point about it perhaps relating to a reaction. Um, my specific question uh, was geared towards more of the younger age population of kids, um, really young and also up to adolescent. Uh, so with, her, you know, let's say they have an underlying diagnosis of uh, attention disorder. So something, um, you know, a mind, uh, a being that has certain behaviors that have a diagnosis, um, you know, one of the things that they may show is impulsivity, which doesn't necessarily mean that they think about something or react to something. They um, more or less just do something. So if, um, if you're out hiking and you have a child with an impulse disorder, the child will not know to not sit at the at the ledge of the the uh, you know cliff because there's danger below. They'll think, oh, let me just grab a picture. Let's hang out here, and they don't think about the repercussions of uh, taking a decision of that sort. It's an imp- It's it's something that's void of of you know knowing what will happen after you do something. So. I'm more or less just speaking about if there is an underlying diagnosis or if there's a, a younger age um, mind that, that needs to, you know, still kind of cultivate um, 
a lot of understanding of um, action and behavior. Okay, so it all comes back to the same thing, Manal. What you're saying is an underlying diagnosis. This is actually a complete misunderstanding of the mind that has been shared in the world. When someone says that someone has attention deficit disorder, and now that's a medical problem that is treated with medication, it's actually a delusion. This is actually not true. Sure, the person is having symptoms of an unconcentrated, unattentive mind, and maybe they lack wisdom, which is what you're talking about, and they sit too close to the edge of a cliff. But there's no pill that's going to solve that. There's no pill that's going to produce concentration or wisdom in the mind. This person or this child is being impulsive because their mind hasn't been actively trained to have concentration. And they're sitting too close to the cliff because they're lacking the wisdom to understand that that's a potential danger. So what is in society today that we talk about, and this is coming up in a future chapter, when we talk about attention deficit disorder or ADHD, hyperactivity disorder, bipolar, manic depression, depression, major depression, bulimia, anxiety, stress, anorexia, all of these different things that today are being labeled as mental disorders, that people think that there's a problem with these people's brains. In reality, there's nothing wrong with the person's brain. What's the real problem is with a situation where someone has been labeled as ADHD or ADD, their just mind is not trained to have concentration. Their mind isn't trained to have wisdom to slowly make wise decisions. So all of these things that we now think of as medical problems, as more and more people learn the Buddhist teachings and actually practice them, people are going to discover that this is not true. Because the whole mental health industry really just blossomed in the last 50 years. We'll go through this in a few weeks and we'll talk about this. But this is actually not true reality. If you look at the actual mind, the problem isn't that the brain is defective and we now need to treat it with medication. The problem is, is that the mind is just untrained and that can all be fixed and all be remedied through eliminating craving, anger, and ignorance. These three poisons and these 10 fetters. And when somebody does that, you'll see that the mind no longer experiences any of those symptoms related to what people today call mental illness. It's going to take a lot of time for people to learn about this and discover this. And we explore this in a future chapter. And once we do, and I lay it out more clearly for all of you guys, you'll be able to see that if any of you have been diagnosed with any mental health disorders, or if any of your children have, or any of your family members, they can actually remedy all of that through the Buddhist teachings. There are no more other questions. We'll just go to James. Thank you, Manal. Teacher David, I thought I would ask you a bit more about the fear of death. Is This seems to be at the root of many other fears. And is addressing this fear very much related to our previous class on addressing the ego and eliminating that? Yes, exactly. That's why I have that now before this chapter. 
is because as long as there's a self, the mind's going to have a fear of death because what the unenlightened mind is doing is it's holding on to this personal existence view. It's craving existence. We talked about it last week as self-image and self-identity, but what's also going on there is the mind is craving existence. This is part of, more accurately, part of the sixth and seventh fetter, which are part of the higher fetters. The sixth fetter is desire for form and desire for formless. These are a desire to exist in one of the realms. So as long as there's craving, desire, attachment in any regard, the mind's going to have this fear. And the Buddha talks about this, like when the body's sick, the mind is going to be miserable because it's got this craving, it's holding on, it's wanting to be outside, it's wanting to interact with people. So it has this discontentedness because it doesn't recognize the impermanent nature of the physical body that sometimes it's going to be healthy and sometimes it's going to be sick and just accepting that it's sometimes going to be sick. So people lay in bed and we moan and we groan and we go to the hospital and people hate being in the hospital and they don't want to be there. They want to hurry up and get out because the mind is craving permanence and it has all these things in life that it's attached to. It wants to see your friends, your family. It wants to drive down the street in a car or on a motorcycle. It wants to go to your favorite restaurant. It's holding on to all these things. This is the same reason why the mind oftentimes fears death that if you have children or if you have a nice house, a nice job, you have a life partner, you're holding on to this world and you want to hold on to this world so tightly that as you kind of get to the point where you're contemplating death or getting close to death, the person's moaning and groaning because they don't want to leave this world. They don't want to leave behind all these things that you're holding on to. But if you train the mind to mentally let go of these things, but you can still have them in your life, but just mentally let go, then you won't fear death. And you'll be able to then reside peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy because there's nothing in this world that you're holding on to. You've literally let go. You still have a car. You still have a child. You still have a life partner. You still have a car. You still have a job. And you interact with all these things. And you're very joyful and peaceful doing so. But you're not holding on to them craving them and wanting them to be permanent because as long as the mind wants these things to be permanent you're holding on to this world and the mind hasn't let go yet and that's where the fear of death is coming from yes as we share our fears that's always been a deep fear of mine and when i was younger it would be a fear that would keep me up at night just the thought of my own mortality and just the thought of falling into oblivion and everything that i am disappearing and I think that as I've been introduced to concepts such as non-self, that has disappeared a bit. But I also think to some degree there's perhaps this interest in continuing to learn and continuing to follow the path. And that almost creates a fear of death in me because I don't want to die tomorrow because I'm very much looking forward to continuing to learn about my mind and continuing to follow this path. So would you say that that's related to perhaps an attachment to the path and also perhaps a sign that I just need to go a bit deeper into the teachings on non-self? 
Yeah, definitely. It sounds like the mind's attached to enlightenment, attaining enlightenment. Maybe it's attached to never being reborn again and not wanting to experience existence again. So the Buddha talks about it as we shouldn't crave existence, but we shouldn't also crave non-existence either. Right? This is either side. This is one of the reasons why I feel like the Buddha never taught and left as an undeclared teaching what happens after death for an enlightened being. Because we don't know. He never shared, right? And if anybody knows that answer, they're not sharing it. Because it's important for your path to enlightenment that you don't crave existence and you don't crave non-existence. Because any kind of craving is going to create discontentedness in the mind and inhibit you from attaining enlightenment. So you literally need to let go of everything. I'll explain it in this way. Is one of the things you're doing on this path to enlightenment is you're essentially killing the mind, right? You're killing the mind in terms of you're killing the craving desire attachment. You're extinguishing it. You're killing anger, hatred, ill will. You're killing ignorance, delusion, or confusion, this unknowing of true reality. And when you kill all of this stuff and you get to the point where the mind is not holding on to anything whatsoever, well, then you don't fear death anymore because you've let go of everything. So sometimes what I say is when you're in meditation, train your mind to be so peaceful in meditation that if you died in that moment, if this physical body died in that moment of meditation, you'd be completely fine with that. And that wouldn't bother you whatsoever. And if you can get to that point where in meditation, you've trained the mind to be so utterly peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, that if you died in that moment, if this physical body died in that moment, you would just be completely fine with that. And there's nothing else that you still need to do in order to complete this life, then the mind is liberated because whether you stay alive or this body dies, you're completely fine either way. It doesn't bother you. So if you can get to that point where the mind is fully liberated in that way, essentially you've killed the mind while you're still alive, while the body's still alive and the mind's still alive, then you get to live the whole rest of this life peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy because you've already killed the mind. The Buddha referred to this as the deathless, that once you kill the mind, essentially through eliminating all of these defilements, then when death actually comes, the physical body dies and the mind separates, but there actually isn't really a true death because you've let go of everything. There's no self here. So once you've trained the mind to that point and you've let go of everything, when it's time for this physical body to die, it's just like, okay, then it's just time to die. And this physical body dies, the mind separates, and whatever happens from there. And if you can get to that point well before physical death, then you're going to experience peaceful, calm, serene, content, mind, and joy for the rest of this life because you're fine if you live or die. You're fine. Now, of course, you're going to make wise decisions to not walk out in front of a truck. You're going to make wise decisions to eat healthy food, right? That's discernment. But 
if for some reason something happened and this physical body died, then okay, you'll just be fine with that and just accept it for what it is, which is just impermanence. That's all it is. You're just accepting the fact that this human body is impermanent. And if you can get to that point where you just accept the fact that this human body and this mind is impermanent and you're not holding on, trying to maintain it permanently, then the mind's liberated from this fear of death. But as long as your mind's trying to hold on to this physical body and this mind, i.e. this existence, as long as your mind's holding on to this existence, craving it to be permanent, there's still going to be a fear of death. So in some sense, the fear of death is simply the fear of the death of the self. And this whole path is about eliminating the self, essentially. Yeah. Such that the fear of death disappears, essentially. Well, the, the nothing in this path just disappears by itself. You have to take a real active role in this. So with the fear of death, that's why the Buddha taught, and I'm teaching as well, to contemplate your own death over multiple sessions and find the space when you're able to do that because that's what's ultimately going to bring the mind to accept death is that you kind of have to envision that, reflect on that, go inward and spend some time really looking at that and really convincing yourself that this physical body has truly died and kind of almost like you're a bird's eye view or a fly on the wall at your own funeral. And just kind of envision what that's like over multiple sessions and just being really comfortable with that because the fear of death there's yes this personal existence view that you're hitting on james but there's also this craving desire attachment for this physical body to be permanent which is part of the self but there's also sometimes a fear of pain some people are fearful of a painful death Sometimes people are afraid of death because they're holding on to their children or their life partner or their job. They really enjoy this life so much that they're holding on to this life so much. So there can be many factors of the mind holding on to three, four, five, eight, ten things that's really producing the fear of death. And the only way to eliminate that is to actively work with the mind to contemplate your own death. And sometimes the best times to do that is when other people have died in your life. So if you're at a funeral and your grandparents have died or someone close to you have died, sitting in that funeral and kind of almost envisioning yourself in that casket can be one of the ways, if that's the way you have a funeral is casket, you know, vision yourself in that casket and as if everybody's coming up to say goodbye to you. And it might make you really, really sad to do this. And you might start crying and you might start getting upset. But in doing that, in raising that discontentedness, the mind's going to have to let that go at some point. And then the next time you do it, it won't be as severe. It'll be less. And then you do it again, like every once every couple of weeks or every couple of months. And then each time the discontentedness gets less and less because you start becoming more and more comfortable with your own death. And eventually you'll have two, three, four sessions where, yeah, you're just completely fine with death. That's okay. And one of the things that's important here is sometimes the ego is there and people might say, yeah, I don't know. I'm not afraid of death. I, I can die. I don't care. But then when you're in a situation where someone pulls out in front of you in traffic, and you're, oh, oh, my goodness. That right there is your fear of death. 
right? And even though your ego might be telling you that you're not afraid of death, when the mind is in a situation where a car pulls out in front of you and you feel that little skip of your heart, that's the fear of death coming into you. So don't allow the ego to convince you that you're not afraid of death because then the mind's holding on to something based on the ego. Instead, even if you think you're not afraid of death, still contemplate your own death the way that I'm talking about in order to be sure that you're not afraid of death. This is wringing out the rag. This is really making sure that you address every little corner of the mind and that there's no dust that is accumulated in any corner of the mind. Yes, David, I suppose that the fear of death is one thing that so many living beings have in common and it even in some way pushed the Buddha to discover the things that he did when he witnessed death for the first time. And it's really helpful to hear this, I'm sure, for most of the class. Yeah, the Buddha during his journey, I'm not sure how much you guys know about his story. We're going to be talking about that soon, too, is uh, he actually almost died as part of his journey to enlightenment. He was not understanding the teachings fully until he actually attained enlightenment. But as part of his journey, he stopped eating for an extended period of time. If you've ever seen a statue or artwork of the Buddha's ribs sunken in and his stomach sunken in and his face really depleted, this is actually depicting the point in time where he starved himself for a really long period of time and he almost was essentially going to die. He was on the death's doorstep. And there was a little girl who came and offered him some rice and he reluctantly ate the rice. And he realized in that moment if he allowed the physical body to die, he would not be able to further train the mind. And I imagine during that period of time where he was starving himself, he overcame the fear of death. And he decided, you know what, if I die, completely fine with that. But at some point, he came to the realization that if he allowed the physical body to die, that he wouldn't be able to train the mind. He realized that his mind wasn't in the middle by practicing this aestheticism where he was completely starving himself, he discovered at some point in time that that wasn't going to lead to enlightenment. And he needed to find the middle, which was moderation of eating. And this is why he just ate once a day. Rather than eating three, four, five, six meals a day, he just ate once a day, which for him was in the middle. So he did come to the brink of death and I imagine that's the point where he probably overcame the fear of death. And all of us need to come to some conclusion where we eliminate the fear of death. And the way to do that is not necessarily going out into the forest and starving yourself the way the Buddha did. But instead, what he suggests and what I suggest is to contemplate your own death over multiple sessions. And you'll find that this will help you get in touch with coming to terms with your own death and realizing that that is going to happen. We have a follow-up on this topic from Holly. She says, would you agree that the fear of death subsides naturally as a person gets older? Maybe because more important life milestones have been met? Not necessarily. Not everybody eliminates the fear of death before death. It can maybe diminish for some people, but not for all people. With this practice that the Buddha shares, you can actively eliminate the fear of death. And that's what I, I feel a wise practitioner would do. 
because sometimes what I hear is people talk about attachments fluffing off or discontentedness fluffing off. But from my experience, very few things just fluff off. Now, there are some kind of smaller, lighter things that can kind of be more easy to let go of. But the mind is doing active work in order to let go of all these things. So it wouldn't be wise to assume that the mind is going to gradually diminish its fear of death as it ages and just kind of wait for that to occur because that's not necessarily going to occur. I feel a wise practitioner would instead take an active role in training the mind to eliminate any kind of fear, including the fear of death. I have a slightly different question to ask David. You mentioned in the chapter that you will also need to train the mind to trust all beings and emptying your fears will help you to trust all beings. And I just thought that I would ask you to explain the significance of trusting all beings a bit more and also trusting all beings in a world or in a society where there are seemingly untrustworthy individuals. Sure. It's important to understand the difference between trusting all beings and using discernment in our life. Okay, so oftentimes we in the unenlightened state do not trust other people and people can feel that and people can sense that and it inhibits us in having open relationships with all people. And oftentimes the reason why we don't trust others is because of conditioning and experiences in our past. So if you've had certain past experiences where people have lied to you or stole from you or something like this, now you find it really hard to trust others. Or if you've been abused verbally, mentally, physically, sexually, or something like this, you might find it very difficult to trust people. And this is going to put a wall between you and others. You're essentially putting this wall and it's going to inhibit you from having open, loving, healthy relationships with all people. And this is all happening once again because of craving, desire, attachment. The mind is holding on to this conditioning. And that's why I put it into this chapter about fears, but I didn't really expand it. Because the mind is holding on to this conditioning of these past experiences, and now it lacks the ability to trust others. Or you're maybe holding on to your money so tightly, so then when you punch in your ATM card or you're punching in your password on a phone, you might kind of go like this and the people around you see that, ah, he doesn't trust me, right? And if they're employees of yours or family members or friends, that doesn't feel good in a relationship. Not that you should show people your ATM password, but at the same time, if you're kind of hiding from people, this produces unwholesome results when people see you don't trust them. And you can't experience this openness in your relationships with all people. So knowing that that's the problem and that's the difficulty that the mind experiences, what the mind needs to work towards is eliminating any conditioning in past experiences that is producing the distrust, okay? For example, for me, at one time in my life, I was taught that anybody with tattoos was a bad person. This is what I was taught kind of growing up, that tattoos meant that you're a bad person. So I actually had a little bit of fear and distrust for people with tattoos for a certain period of time in my life. 
And that's because of conditioning in my past. And when I was around somebody that had tattoos, I was a little bit apprehensive and I didn't feel like I could have an open relationship with this person because of the conditioning that I had in my past. Well, of course, (laughs) you know, there's no reason to not trust somebody just because they have a tattoo. Somebody choosing to have some kind of body art on their body, it's just their choice. You know, there's no reason not to trust them just because of the body art. But our mind holds on to this craving, desire, attachment, holds on to this conditioning, and then it inhibits itself from having this open, warm relationship with someone just because something as silly as a tattoo. And when you let that go, now you can be loving and kind and generous and compassionate with all beings no matter what. With that said, now we'll move to the next part. There's a certain level of discernment where if you've been involved with a certain person and they've lied to you or they've stolen from you or they've committed sexual misconduct, for example, in your life, there's a certain amount of distrust that might kind of bubble up in the mind based on these past experiences. And each person has to decide for themselves how significant of an experience was that? And is it wise for me to trust this person in the future? Was this a one-time situation? Is this a one-time thing that happened and we can move past it and move beyond it? Or do I need to choose to no longer be in a relationship with this person, right? So when I say trust all beings, it doesn't mean trust all beings regardless of your past experiences. What it means is trust all beings without any conditioning, such as a tattoo, that would inhibit you from just trusting all people without any conditioning. If you've had experiences that leads to wise decision making with this particular person, then that might lead you to decide through wise decision making to no longer trust that person. But don't allow this person with tattoos who stole from you to now stop trusting everybody with tattoos, right? Or this person who lied to you with blonde hair to now stop trusting everybody with blonde hair. That's what the unenlightened mind wants to do. Because of this permanence that the mind has that it expects is when someone steals from you with blonde hair, for example, now the mind thinks that everybody with blonde hair is gonna steal from you. And this is where racism and discrimination comes from. Somebody might have had a bad experience with somebody from a certain culture or a certain background or a certain skin color or a certain ethnicity. They might have had a bad experience with that one person. And now they attribute that everybody with the same skin color or the same ethnicity or the same whatever, the mind's holding on, craving permanence, thinking permanence, that everybody of that same ethnicity is going to treat me in the same way. And because of that, now I can't trust anybody with that ethnicity or that skin color. So what I'm sharing, and I didn't go into it in a lot of detail in that book for a reason, because there's already so many stuff in there, is that what you've got to get to is you got to get to where you uncondition the mind and you realize that if this person that has blonde hair, blue eyes, and white skin beat you up in a parking lot, that that was just that one person's decision 
you don't have to go around not trusting blonde hair, blue eyes, and white skin and thinking that everyone with blonde hair, blue eyes, and white skin is a horrible person. And now you're fearful and you kind of run and, and shy away from any kind of relationship with someone with blonde hair, blue eyes, and, and white skin, for example. This is how racism and discrimination continues and proliferates in our world because of this lack of wisdom, this ignorance, this delusion, this unknowing of true reality is the mind is holding on with craving, desire, attachment, thinking permanence that everyone with blonde hair, blue eyes, and white skin is a horrible person. And now that gets precipitated out into the world. And now more and more people believe that rather than looking at this as a one-time isolated situation and a blonde hair, blue eye, white skin person could steal from me, but also a brown hair person, brown skin and brown eyes could also steal from me too. And that's just that one situation. So in order to trust all beings, you have to look at each individual situation independently and not think that it's permanent, that all blonde hair, blue eye and white skin people are going to steal from you and then or beat you up in a parking lot so trusting all beings is essentially a teaching related to liberating ourselves from conditioning and prejudices and biases which essentially find their root in fear which is of course the topic of our class today exactly james you're getting into this and seeing it very very clearly that by you trusting all beings you're letting go of all this past conditioning and all these fears and now when you see a stranger in an elevator, you can smile and say, how are you today? Oh, it's lovely to meet you, right? Rather than, oh, I better not talk to that person. That's a stranger. They might actually hurt me and I've got to be afraid of them. Oh, they're carrying a bag. I wonder what they've got in their bag. Oh my goodness, they've got a tattoo. What's going to happen to me? right? That's what the mind goes through and it churns and it ruminates and now it's fearful and it's looking out as this person is an enemy rather than just letting all that conditioning go, residing peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. Hey, how are you today? Lovely to meet you. Nice to see you, right? This is one of the things that you get used to as you become more and more enlightened is just being able to talk with anybody and everybody. But now if this person stops and you're like hey how are you nice to meet you lovely to see you maybe they stop the elevator at their floor and say hey uh you know do you want to come into my house and then they open their door to their apartment and you see flames in their living room you're like ah now i think i'm good i'll see you another time so that's where the discernment kicks in right where you see the flames in their living room and you're like mm, i think i'm okay but nice meeting you i'll see you next time Right. So trusting all beings, you need to let go of any of those phobias, any of that biases that you talked about. But at the same time, there's always a level of discernment that all of these teachings balance on is that you always look at wise decision making. But just getting into an elevator with a stranger is no reason to kind of, you know, be skimmish and kind of, you know, hide in the corner because you're afraid of this person who happens to be wearing a black leather jacket and has a tattoo on their neck, right? There's no reason to be afraid of that person because they haven't done anything. They're just a person standing in an elevator. But if the person has conditioning from past experiences, they might become very fearful in that situation 
the mind is not enlightened because in that situation, the mind is experiencing discontentedness. Whereas if you let go of this conditioning, you can get in the elevator with anybody and be completely comfortable in doing so and just reside peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy and trusting all beings. So it seems with discernment, it's about living your life according to what is and not what you imagine, essentially. Right. This is the perceptions, right? The Buddha talks about clinging to perceptions in the Four Noble Truths. Our perceptions are that we have a certain belief or a certain opinion of the way things seem to be. So if you have conditioning and perceptions from your past that all people with a black leather jacket and a tattoo are going to cause you harm, then holding on to that perception, that belief, that opinion of the way things seem, when you get in the elevator and someone has a black jacket and a tattoo, you're going to be afraid because you're holding on, you're clinging to that perception. Whereas if you let go of that conditioning and you realize that that's not true reality, and you can see clearly that this is just a person with a black jacket and a tattoo. No reason to be scared of them. Now, if they had a black jacket and a tattoo, they're holding a 12-gauge shotgun and they've got a big old sword coming off their hip. And they've got a, a shirt that says, I'm going to kill everybody that I come in contact with. Maybe you don't want to get in that elevator. That would be discernment, right? But that's not the situation. The situation is they've just got a black leather jacket on and a tattoo on their neck. And if you see true reality, all you see is a human being who's your brother, your mother, your father, your sister, or some other relative. And when you get in the elevator, hi, how are you, sir? Lovely to meet you. Or how are you, ma'am? Nice to meet you. Right? And you can be loving and kind with everybody. Thank you, David. Very helpful discussion as always. And that seems to be all the questions we have for today. Okay. Well, this topic of eliminating fears is really important and it may be something that you're ready to go off and start addressing right now or you might be addressing something else right now you might be working on right speech or right action or you might be working on the five precepts and eliminating substances that cause heedlessness or something like this this might not be something that you're ready to go off and start working with right now but as part of this first book volume one it's important that you get an overview and an understanding of what you need to do and part of the work that you're doing with eliminating craving, desire, attachment is all working to eliminate fears. Because no matter how much you read in the Pali Canon, there's not teachings from the Buddha that explain the level of detail to eliminate fears that we talked about today. He talks about not being fearful, but what we've got 2,500 years later, we don't have the exact teachings of how to actually eliminate those fears in the mind. So what I'm sharing with you today is how you would do that and when or if you're ready to do that in different situations, you might choose to do that. Or if you're around people that you have a certain amount of loving kindness and compassion for, like children, like Holly was talking about, you might choose to maybe help them or influence them in letting go of some of their fears because that is going to impact them in future part of their life and if you can influence them at the age of 8 or 10 or 14 or 16 to help them get over that fear, that's really wise. Now, if any of you guys have ever done any horseback riding before, if somebody falls off of a horse, what's the thing that they always tell you to do? 
they always tell you to get right back on the horse, right? The reason why is because they that conditioning of falling off the horse and hitting the ground so hard, if you choose not to get on the horse and you leave and you go away from it and you have aversion, you're letting that conditioning soak into the mind and you're going to allow the mind to now be fearful of riding horses. So if you've ever been around horses, if you fall off of a horse, they teach you to get right back on. Okay, no matter how much pain you're in, unless you got to go to the hospital, you get right back on the horse. But even you go to the hospital, you usually come home and get right back on the horse because you don't want that conditioning to set in to create the fear of riding horses. So if you have current fears, work with them skillfully to eliminate them the way that we've talked about today. But going forward, if there's any situations where you fall off the horse, you fall off of a bike, you fall off of a motorcycle, you do anything, you, you have some negative experience in the world with a snake or a spider or an ant, don't allow the mind to hold on to that. Get right back into the saddle. Don't allow this conditioning to set into the mind. Because once the conditioning sets into the mind and it's there for many years, it's much harder to uproot that craving desire attachment that's causing the fear. So when you see something like that occur, get right back into the saddle so it doesn't allow the mind to hold on to that conditioning. Next week, we're going to be in chapter 18, which is about God and that we have free will. Now, the Buddha never taught whether we should have belief in God or not. He taught about certain gods, and this is something that came up in his actual teachings. One of the big myths about the Buddhist teachings is some people say the Buddha denied the existence of God, or people will say there is no God in Buddhism. Well, the Buddha didn't make God a central figure in the attainment of enlightenment because God isn't granting enlightenment. He's not giving us enlightenment and you can attain enlightenment on your own. But during the lifetime of the Buddha, he did share teachings about God in order to help people understand. You can actually attain enlightenment with a relationship with God or without a relationship with God. You don't need to have a relationship with God in order to attain enlightenment. So what we're going to talk about next week in that chapter 18 is helping you to undo some of this conditioning that your mind might have been exposed to as it relates to God so that you can let that go. And if you choose to have a relationship with God, then you can do that without fear because some people are taught to actually fear God, but that's not going to lead to enlightenment if you actually fear God. And some people are taught that God just doesn't exist. And if that's what you would like to go forward with on this path to enlightenment, then that's fine too. But if you're interested in understanding this topic and letting go of any conditioning that your mind might have around this topic, that's what we're going to talk about next week. Some people just hearing the word God, it can elicit discontentedness in the mind. So even just me speaking about God right now, if a certain fear came to your mind or a certain pleasure came to your mind or a certain anger or frustration came to your mind, 
you should definitely attend next class because you need to desensitize your mind to that so that you can talk about God or you can hear things about God or not and your mind can be completely peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. So my talk next week is not going to be to try to convince you that God exists. It's not going to try to convince you to believe in God. That's not what these teachings are all about. There's no belief in these teachings whatsoever. Instead, what I'm going to teach you is, if you would like to have a relationship with God and attain enlightenment, here's how to do that. If you would like to not have a relationship with God and still attain enlightenment, here's how you would do that. So I'm not going to convince you to do either side. You choose for yourself which direction you'd like to take. And my talk next week is going to help you to be able to be successful if you choose to have a relationship or you choose not to have a relationship. And hopefully to uncondition the mind from things that you might have been taught in the past based on this topic. So this is why this topic of fears comes up first in the book because a lot of people are actually taught to fear God. And there's just no need to do that because God isn't doing anything harmful to us whatsoever. But we'll cover all of this next week in chapter 18, which is titled, God's Creative Actions, You Have Free Will. So if you'd like to read that ahead of time, you can, or you can read it after class. We'll cover that next week on Sunday. On Wednesday coming up, we're going to be doing loving kindness meditation together. And of course, I always open up to any questions that you guys might be having as you're progressing in your practice. So you can use that time to ask any questions about your meditation practice or any other teachings that you're learning as part of this path through the resources that I share. There's just an open question period, typically at the end of meditation, that you can just ask any question that you like. So thank you all for joining today's class. I'm really pleased to see that you guys are diving into these teachings so deeply. I see the Facebook group really kind of igniting with a lot of discussion and really well thought out questions and really investigating and examining the Buddhist teachings, which is just a real joy to see because, you know, just to sit back and kind of read these teachings and kind of take them in and just slowly digest them. Yeah, that's great. But to roll up the sleeves and actively engage through these classes like you guys have been over the last few weeks and as you are starting to do in the Facebook group, this is where you're really going to uncover the truth because rather than just reading it and just saying, okay, well, the Buddha said that, you're like, hold on a second. Let me kind of investigate this some more. Let me examine this some more and look at all sides of this left, right, up, down, front, back, and really dig into the teachings. And that's what I'm really pleased to see this community of practitioners that you guys are starting to do, that you're really digging into these teachings. And that's going to ultimately benefit you in your practice. Because the more you dig into these teachings and you ask questions, and we have very respectful conversation, either in class or in the Facebook group or otherwise, you're going to learn to practice right speech. You're going to get more insight and discussion about exploring these teachings. And you'll be able to walk away with some more information, some more teachings to be able to reflect on and gain some wisdom in. So thank you all for your dedication to learning, reflecting, and practicing these teachings. The more that you do that, you're going to see that the condition of the mind just gradually improves. 
So until next Wednesday or Sunday, have a lovely rest of your day. We'll see you then. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment. Enlightenment.